I'm just glad to get to talk without a mask on. <laughs> I was scheduled to preach chapel almost exactly 12 years ago. I know that because I got a call from my dad asking if I would drive to Jonesboro, Arkansas and go to a doctor's appointment with him. He wanted me there with uh, him and mom. And I had to miss chapel. And actually, Robin Sigers pinch hit for me. After 12 years, dad's cancer was back. And I think he suspected it. And that's why he asked me to come. When the doctor came in, after they put us in that little room, and mom and dad and I were seated there, the doctor came in. And he sat down on a small stool. And he wheeled up uh, right amongst the three of us. I thought, that is informal, rather intimate, and probably not good news. And then he spoke words that were life-changing for all of us. He said, Bill, your cancer's back. Now, my dad, uh, the first words out of his mouth were, uh, Doc, what are we going to do about it this time? And I will never forget the doctor's response. He said, Bill, we're not going to do anything about it this time. This is the one. And then he began to describe all of the places my dad's cancer had gone. And mom and I sat there in stunned silence. And, and my dad, ever the half a full glass kind of guy, glass always half full with dad, he said, well, doc, you ain't cheating me out of much. I'm 75 years old. And we drove back home in a silent car. And from uh, that August until November, we had, we had three good, coherent months. As dad lay in the back room, and, and I would go visit every weekend. And my daddy, my favorite Cardinal fan, my partner in mischief, my lifelong friend, counselor, and my preacher went to be with Jesus. And over that three months, it seemed like my dad had a hundred last words. He was just always thinking of something. <laughs> and he would call me. I'd be in the living room trying to spend some time with mom, and I'd hear, Gerald. And I'd go, oh, not another last word. I can't take it. But it was precious, and I wouldn't change it. Words about how strangely there was no fear of death. He spoke words about finances, about his bride, my mama, and how she would be taken care of. He was thinking about that. I think about my dad every school fall when I get to Deuteronomy, an Old Testament history class. I think about him because... Deuteronomy is Moses rephrasing of an elaboration upon the law. And it's before a newer, younger generation. It's before they enter into life. And the land, the older generation, had not trusted God enough to pursue. Moses is like a nervous daddy in Deuteronomy. It's almost like he says, oh, 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 one more thing. And he preaches another sermon. He knows he won't be there for his family, but he wants life, real life for them. 
And Moses' heart comes out in these final words more than any other part of the law. It's in Deuteronomy where you find less of God speaking to, Mo, to Moses and a lot more of Moses speaking to his people. A life. It's all about life. The best possible life. That's what he wants for his family. It's what can be in their future, and it's what he wants for all of God's people. And he knows that's going to depend upon them helping one another find that life. So Moses has some reminders for his family. It is what we call Deuteronomy. He reminds them, for example, that God's, he reminds God's people that God's intention had always been for his people to have life. It's what he intended in the garden, access to the tree of life, forfeited when they rebelled. It's what he intends ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, restored access to the tree of life and the paradise of God. And as Dr. Shane has reminded us, we live between those two trees. But as a matter of fact, so did Israel. And if I could paraphrase Paul, what happened to Israel was for our instruction. And the Hebrews writer, the old covenant was a shadow of the real thing. And so life in a good land. It's not a side issue for Moses. Now I'm going to rapid fire some passages through Deuteronomy because here's what I want you to know. It's not just Griff's pet peeve this morning. It's the point of Deuteronomy. And here it is beginning in chapter 4 verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Verse 40, therefore you shall keep his statute and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Chapter 5, verse 33, you shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Chapter 6, verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commands, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Now, we've been incorporating the Shema in our chapel services. Here, here's the verse that precedes the Shema. Verse 3 of chapter 6, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a good place to live. Chapter 6, verse 18, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. Chapter 11, verse 8. 
You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 16, verse 20. In very succinct fashion, he suggests treating people right, all people, is a major element in real life. Here's what he says. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. 29.9, therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all you do. Chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. It's like Moses is going, death, life. Please, please, please. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Choose life. Hey, Ozark family. It's not a side issue, it's the issue in Deuteronomy. It's what Moses wants to give in his final charge to his children. He will not be there, but he wants to know that they will live real life. And so the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might to listen to the creator and respond is life. Now, part of their listening to God, according to our assigned text, and I do have one, I'm just not going to spend a whole lot of time in it. Part of their listening to God, according to our assigned text, Deuteronomy 15, was helping one another find the independence and freedom. Hey, for Israel from debt and dependence upon others. He wants all of Israel to be able to live life in freedom and joy before God in a land of milk and honey. Now here's Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse one. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. That means debts will be forgiven, servants will be released. Verse 2, and this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release, notice it's God's heart behind this, the Lord's release has been proclaimed. They're teaching something about God by how they release their servants on that seventh year and take care of their needs and help them begin to live a life, I don't mind saying it, of independence. You understand what I mean, don't you? He wants them to live life. Now, this was not slavery we're talking about as we might think of it from our own history. 
In fact, you'll notice if you read Deuteronomy 15 closely, it's, it appears much more like some kind of service contract in which you work to pay off a debt. So you would sell yourself into servitude to the owner and it's in order to take care of your family. Now, there's a lot that's unclear about this practice. You wouldn't believe the way scholars are divided up over what is really being taught here that on the seventh year, you'll release your servants and you'll forgive debts. Was it the Sabbath year for everybody and, and everybody did it at the same time? Or was it seven years from the start of service? In fact, it's unclear how well, if ever, the Sabbath year, as well as the 50th year of Jubilee, was even practiced in Israel. It's difficult to tell and scholars are divided, but the principle is clear. It cannot be missed. Only if chosen by the servant is it permanent service. Otherwise, there comes a time, there's a release of debt and a release of service. And not only that, but the one who had, the owner of the debt, is told to generously give to the worker so that he might have what I'll just call a good start on the next stage of life. It's a way that the law of God demonstrated that it was not God's intention that his people be bound to debt or to others. Freedom from debt and dependence upon others. That kind of freedom and independence would feel good, wouldn't it? Just to be able to get up and go about living your life in Jehovah just like anybody else does. I don't know if you've ever paid off a debt or not, but I've paid off a couple of them, a couple of pretty good sized ones. Automobiles, cars, automobiles, houses. It was back in the day when banks sent you a payment booklet and you would tear a page out and put your check with it and mail it in. And when you got to the last page and tore that out to pay it, and you wrote that check just a little bit different. I might have paid it a day or two early as opposed to a day or two late. And you sent that in, and sometime later in the mail came a piece of paper from the bank that said, fulfilled, debt, lien, released. You're free from it. Oh, what a great feeling. Some of you someday are gonna make your last payment on a student loan. And you're going to go, well, if you're like me, you're going to pull a hanky out and go. <laughs> Most of you normal people will celebrate. I cry. What a great set of words Moses uses in Deuteronomy 15. Words like released, blessed, freed redeemed. Those are great words of freedom. Now, whether that was ever entirely lived out in Canaan, whether Israel was ever able to fully live in this life is not what is most significant in my mind. What is most significant in my mind is that it is life God envisions and intends and instructs for his people, all his people, all and so Moses has another reminder. He reminds God's people that that kind of life 
is only possible if we truly care for one another in very active ways. It's as we care for and help one another get there, help one another find it and move into it. And so one of the things Moses is concerned about in this chapter is how his children who, fa- who, who have found the life are gonna treat others who aren't there yet. Will they oppress and hold them down, beholden to me because I've lent to you, or are they gonna help people find life, real life, to the fullest? The vision of life in the promised land was to look more like this, verse four. But there will be no poor among you. Wow. For the Lord will bless you in the land that he's giving you for an inheritance. Now that's an interesting verse. Because seven verses later, verse 11, here's what he's gonna say. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. There will be no poor among you. There will be no poor among you. Therefore, here's what I'm telling you to do. You be generous and you share because there are always gonna be poor among you. I don't think it's a mistake that Luke says of God's new Israel, the church, in very Deuteronomy-like language, Acts chapter four, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. To paraphrase the late Fred Craddock, there are only two ways that can be true. There shall be no poor among them. Either you do not allow poor people to be a part of you, or you help them be lifted up so that they can live the life. There, shall, there, there will be no poor among you. There will never cease to be poor among you. Therefore, no needy. The followers of Jesus wouldn't allow it. They weren't willing to live life without helping others find the same. It's obvious that Moses means for us to make sure his people help others find life. How can I live and enjoy the land and life that God intends surrounded by others who are unable to live in it? Moses reminds us of something else. Not just that God intends life, and one of the ways he's gonna accomplish this is is as we lift one another up, care for one another. But the other thing Moses wants to remind his children of is this, that ought to be a happy obligation for us. Because in reality, Here it is, you've heard it almost every week, just in different language each week. In reality, we are all the poor who've been helped. Verse 14, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Now, that's been a common chapel sermon theme that almost everyone has mentioned in some form. We are the lifted, and we find a way to lift. Carolyn Schrage reminded us last week, hurt people hurt people. But the reverse is true as well as far as Moses is concerned. Rescued people rescue people, freed people help people find freedom. I love what Kurt Hazelden wrote years ago. Our equality does not so much lie in the fact that we are equally good, but that we are all equally bad and in equal need of redemption. We all need release. We all need that freedom. It's what Paul meant when he instructed in Romans 12, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why do we live sacrificial, generous and caring lives? Answer, because God has been generous and caring to us. That's why. And we cannot imagine doing for others, helping others find life when God has given us life. When I was 13, I visited the Holy Land with my family. I wish I could tell you a whole lot about it. I was 13 years old. I should, have been, I should be able to tell you a whole lot about it. Honestly, I was more in, interested in the 13-year-old Israeli girls than I was anything else about the <laughs> promised land. But my family uh, went to the Holy Land and, and uh, I remember a village. We were eating in a restaurant. It's one of the most vivid memories I have of that trip because I sat by the front glass looking out and across the street were locals who, who had uh, nothing to eat. And I remember their eyes looking through the window at me. I wish I could tell you I did something noble. I, I didn't. But I do remember, I absolutely could not eat what was in front of me. I cannot imagine living the life God wants us to have while others aren't living in it. Once every seven years in the sabbatical year and once every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, God's people got a glimpse of how it would be if the creator has his way. If God gets his way, if God has his favor in a place, what will it look like? And once every seven years and once every 50 years, according to the law, Israel would get a look at that. It may or may not ever have fully transpired during Israel's days. It was begun in fulfillment, however, in a small hometown synagogue in, a, in the town of Nazareth where Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was kicking off. Here's what it's going to look like when God has his way. And he's later going to explain in John 10, 10 why he came. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I love it that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, the life. Three months after that doctor's meeting, my dad called me back to his room. And for the first time ever, I heard my dad say something like this. I said, what do you want, daddy? He said, I, I just want to talk. He said, I'm scared. I said, what are you scared about, daddy? Are you, are you scared of dying? He went, no. He said, in fact, I'll tell you something that'll help you here. God always gives you just what you need, just when you need it. I'm not scared. He said, I'm scared about your mama. What's going to happen to your mama? And I patted his hand and I said, Daddy, mama's going to be okay. Larry and I will make sure mama's taken care of. Don't you worry about it. And my daddy said, uh, Gerald, in that case, I think I'm ready to go see Jesus. And I said, you will, Daddy. You will. In his time. And a couple of weeks later, I held his hand. And there he went. You know what? It never entered my mind that my daddy was dead. Because Jesus said in John chapter 11, whoever, believe, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I love that. I love that. It's almost like you're walking along and your earthly body lies down and you go, I wonder what that was. I want that life that never ends. I can't imagine living it to the fullest with people around me who don't have it. I love Justin Martyr's mid-second century description of a church service when he says we would gather together, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. When the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. It's almost like Justin Martyr said, we get together, we read an apostle, we read a prophet, the elder stands up and says, hey, let's go out and do it. This isn't rocket science. but there will be no poor among you. If, it, if among you one of your brothers shall become poor in any of your towns, don't harden your heart. Remember you were land in the slave of Egypt from the prophet. Could I read something from an apostle? Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I wonder if Griff is talking about this life or the next life. Yes. 
wherever God is, is holy. And the one who lives and believes in me, Jesus said, will never die. It's not rocket science. Let's help people find life.